Welcome back to the history of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that can represent European history as a microcosm. What can you expect of this episode? Cologne finds itself in a double divorce drama in the course of the 9th century. A Frankish double divorce drama. The Carolingians have probably learned nothing from the Merovingians. They too, according to Frankish tradition, would like to divide their empire between their respective still-living adult sons. At first this went well, for after the death of Charles the Great in 814, only one son named Louis remained, who could thus inherit the entire Frankish empire. But he already had three adult sons who envied their father his rule. These three sons and their descendants will have a significant share in the fact that the Frankish Empire broke up again so quickly. The other divorce drama is one between two people, between Emperor Lothar II and his wife. And Cologne had a hand in that, a divorce that was not meant to be. Even the good lord in heaven did not seem to like the whole affair. One morning in a city in the north of Cologne, when the Archbishop of Cologne, Gunther, sets out for Mass, the heavens open and Saint Victor himself descends and slays the sacrilegious chief shepherd of Cologne. Okay, well, that sounds too dramatic and probably belongs to the realm of legends, but this double divorce drama would ensure that in the long run, Germany and France would each emerge from it. But enough foreshadowing. On to the intro. In the last episode, we had a look at some aspects of the city in the Carolingian period, at least as far as that is possible. But now we return to the politics of the day. What did rule look like in Carolingian Cologne? Nominally, Cologne has probably been ruled by a Frankish count since the time of Clotwig, who rules the Gau, so the district of Cologne. Deutz, on the other hand, on the right side of the Rhine, forms its own Gau district and has its own count. But of these Frankish counts in Cologne and in Deutz, we often know nothing at all, of most of them not even their names. Thus, as in the time of Kunibert or Hildebold before, it was noted in research that this could be an indication that already in this time the archbishops of Cologne exercised the real political power in the city or in the Kölngau, the district of Cologne. And this brings us to the actual true rulers of Cologne. Cologne's first archbishop Hildebold is comparatively well known to us as a historical figure. After all, we had enough historical sources and material to create two and a half episodes just about him, but the less we know about his direct successor. Hildebold's direct successor was a man called Hadebald. This is tragic that we know so little about him, because 
Hildebrot's successor himself officiated for over 20 years as the second Archbishop of Cologne until the year 841. That's a long time. Angela Merkel officiated as German Chancellor for 16 years. To me, it already seems like we've never had another Chancellor. As I said, Hildebold's successor was called Hadebald. This suggests that he must have been related to Hildebold because Hadebald's siblings were also named Hasbald and Helmbald. Funny names, aren't they? But the similarity of their names give us the impression that they might have been related, but this degree of relationship is not proven. Certainly, this Hardebald, like his predecessor in office Hildebold, will have come from the Frankish nobility of the region. Only one thing we know for sure about Hardebald. Just like today, albeit mostly in digital form, libraries already had circulation lists back then. There it was documented who borrowed a book, when and for how long. And Hadebald in particular was, according to this 9th century circulation list, a diligent user and borrower of books. Which should not be surprising after all, he was the Archbishop of Cologne and certainly had the best access to the library. This Cologne Cathedral Library, founded by Hildebald around the year 800, had numerous manuscripts in its collection. Around the year 833, so during the tenure of Hildebald's successor Hadebald, a whole 175 manuscripts and books are listed in the directory of the Cathedral Library of Cologne. For the time, this is a large amount of books, and books were incredibly expensive because they had to be produced laboriously by hand and were written on parchment. This could usually only be done by monasteries where the necessary knowledge, not to mention the ability to read and write, was widespread among the monks. Of these manuscripts from the early medieval cathedral library in Cologne, 35 have survived to the present day. The oldest book in the collection even dates back to the late 6th century. These books and manuscripts were not only about Christian theology. Also present were essays on natural science or textbooks on Latin grammar. Volumes on orthography, rhetoric and dialectics were also part of this library. In the course of the centuries, the cathedral library was to become famous throughout Europe and have a significant influence on European book illumination of the High Middle Ages. Well, we don't know much more about Hadabad than that. He liked to check out books. Cool. I like to do that too. So let's move on to the next subject. Our book nerd Archbishop Hadabad died after more than 22 years in office in the year 841. The Good Shepherd of Cologne will certainly not be able to help it that he died exactly in that year. For Cologne, however, he could not have chosen a worse date. For it was precisely at this time that the Frankish Empire was facing a test of strength. Why actually? Well, as always in Fast Forward, the developments after the death of Charles the Great in the year 814. 
Charles had had several sons during his lifetime. As laboriously as he had conquered his vast European empire, he was also convinced to follow the Frankish old tradition to divide his inheritance equally among his sons. Clearly, the Frankish empire was to remain one on paper with several rulers with equal rights who were to administer their share of the inheritance. How well that had worked out in the past, like under the Merovingians before, I think I no longer need to mention. But at first, it did not come to a division of Charles's inheritance anymore, because when Charles died in the year 814, all his sons had died before him. With the exception of his son Louis. Thus, Louis, with the later epithet the Pious, was able to inherit the entire empire of his father, with the title of Roman Emperor included, which Louis received through the efforts of his father already in the year 813, so one year before his father died. For many reasons, however, Louis did not manage to maintain a viable, united Frankish empire. With his already three, at times even four, adult sons, he was quasi in permanent dispute. Twice they tried to depose Louis as a Frankish emperor in the year 830 and the year 833, respectively, but this failed both times. But that's not really a great start to a good father-son relationship, I guess. Despite all this, even considering the fact that many historians in particular saw Louis negatively and as a weak ruler until recent times, his reign was not a bad time for the Frankish Empire. Intellectually, culturally and economically, Louis successfully continued the reforms of his father, only with the courtly power politics and his distribution of inheritance, he was unlucky. But hey guys, it was also an almost impossible task. Charles the Great had a shadow that no one could step out of. Charles did not only cast a shadow, he did a solar eclipse that every other medieval ruler tried to copy, and everyone after him failed in doing so. Charles the Great conquered a lot of new territory, really a lot, but it was his son Louis, however, that had now the unpleasant task of integrating all the new conquests into the Frankish Empire. Then, Louis had trouble with all of his kids, or as already mentioned, who were all healthy and alive. Charles only had one son at the end of his life, Louis. And Louis' kids were not to be pleased. It was impossible, because Louis' eldest son, Lothar, wanted to inherit his father's power as a sole ruler of the Frankish Empire in the future. But of course, Louis' younger two sons wanted to see the empire equally divided among the three. So you see, to solve this family dispute, the oldest son wants everything and the younger ones want to sh share it. I mean, to solve this was quasi an impossible task. After 26 years of being the heir of Charles the Great's empire, Louis died in the year 840, leaving behind an economically and culturally prosperous but politically divided empire.
Exactly at this time in the year 841, the Archbishop of Cologne Hadebald also died. As you know, the Frankish rulers had always had a great influence on who became bishop or now archbishop in Cologne and in general who became bishop in their empire in the single bishop sees. Cunibert had owed his appointment to the Merovingian king Dagobert in the 7th century. Hildebold had received the episcopal see through close friendship with Charles the Great and likewise Hadebald had been appointed archbishop of Cologne through the intercession of Emperor Louis, the son of Charles the Great. But now the situation was different. Hadebald had just died in that time when the three sons of Emperor Louis led a war of succession among themselves. These sons were, and attention again, funny epithets follow. So the first son was Lothar, the second Louis the German in distinction to his father Pius, but just as a quick side note, the German is not accurate at all. All those three were still Franks and not Germans or French. And the third son was Charles the Bold. And I don't mean bold in, because I don't know how to pronounce this right, but I don't mean bold in terms of being brave, but bold in being having no hair on your head. But I read somewhere that this has nothing to do with his hair and it's just a metaphor for something. So if you're interested in all those funny epithets, you should look them up yourselves because I will not go further into detail about that. But these epithets from later times were necessary because these kings and emperors were always called the same or very similar way. They were all called Charles or Louis or Lothar or whatever. For several years the three brothers fought amongst themselves with everything they got until they realized that they had to come to an agreement somehow how to divide daddy's empire. In the year 843 at Verdun, the very place where the bloody battle of World War I would take place in around 1073 years later between the big two successor nations of the Frankish Empire, Germany and France, the three sons of Louis divided the empire that Charles the Great had created and Louis the Pious had tried to preserve. Charles the Bold got the western part of the empire, which would later become France. Louis, son of deceased Louis, received the eastern part of the empire, from which Germany would later spring. Lothar, in turn, received the imperial dignity as being the oldest brother, because as there was only one god, there could only be one Roman emperor. In addition, Lothar received quasi the filet piece of the Frankish Empire, quasi a kind of a middle kingdom, in order to be able to hold the two younger brothers on both sides, in west and east in check. This middle kingdom included Rome, the rich northern Italian cities, Provence, Burgundy, the Rhineland, today's Netherlands and the North Sea coast. So an empire which went like a stripe through the whole of Europe from north to south, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. Exactly in this middle kingdom, the Lotharingian kingdom, lay our city of Cologne. You have to have a look at this middle kingdom on a map. 
The best place is my homepage thehistoryofcologne.com in the corresponding companion post of this episode. All the links in the show notes. If you know the current borders of Europe some kind of way, you will surely think, have they been drinking too much or why is this Middle Kingdom looking so unnatural? From today's perspective, it truly looks so artificial and wrong. But historically, it was not. This Middle Kingdom's borders to the east corresponded quite closely to the borders that the once Roman Empire had in the respective regions for centuries. Also to the west, many borders of the Middle Kingdom were in many places identical with those of former Roman provinces in Gaul. Lofa's Middle Kingdom also pretty much represented the flow of traffic between Italy and Europe north of the Alps that had existed since ancient times. Remember earlier episodes where the Roman messengers and armies to Cologne went exactly this way, first to northern Italy, then mostly through Provence via Lyon in Burgundy up to the upper Germania province towards the Rhine and then finally along that river north to Cologne and the North Sea coast. From this point of view, the territorial distribution of this Middle Kingdom is not at all illogical. Alright, so Cologne was in Lofa's Middle Kingdom, but where was the problem for Cologne now? As an archbishopric, the Archbishop of Cologne had to supervise the Cologne ecclesiastical province, meaning the several bishoprics under Cologne's control, so-called suffragan bishoprics. At that time, these were Liège, Utrecht, Münster, Osnabrück, Minden and Bremen. Those places don't have to mean anything to you because, you know, there's a map on my companion post. In the United Frankish Empire, this was not a problem, but after the Treaty of Verdun in 843, Cologne's ecclesiastical province found itself distributed among various dominions. Cologne, Liège and Utrecht were in the Middle Kingdom of Emperor Lofa, so no problem with that. But Münster, Osnabrück, Minden and Bremen, however, were in the Eastern Frankish Empire of King Louis the German. Since up to now, the respective Frankish ruler always decisively determined who became the respective archbishop in Cologne, meaning this was now a tricky situation. The research situation for the 840s is somewhat obscure. Probably Emperor Lothar and King Louis each appointed an archbishop of Cologne after the death of Hardebald in 841. Neither of the two appointed archbishops, however, could assert themselves as the one sole archbishop in the archbishopric of Cologne. It was not until the year 850 that the agreement was reached on the very Gunther from the intro of the episode to make him the only archbishop of Cologne. So, let's take a closer look at this dazzling early medieval Archbishop of Cologne. Like Hildebold, Archbishop Gunther was a close friend 
of the emperor and his arch-chancellor at the court of Lothar and as well from 855 onwards of his son as well, Lothar II. Once again a very choice of name. Adding to all these titles and honors from the Frankish rulers, Gunther received the pallium from Pope Nicholas I in 860. A pallium is a kind of ribbon which the Pope bestows on the archbishops of the church to this day. This ribbon, which can be up to 15 cm wide, is worn on the chasuble in a clearly visible manner, quasi a kind of scarf or chain around the upper body. I'll post a picture of it on my social media channels. Even after 1,100 years, the Archbishop of Cologne still wears a pallium during Mass. At that time, however, it was a special sign of recognition of the Pope towards an Archbishop, and Gunther was the very first Archbishop of Cologne to receive a pallium from the Pope. An example of how the Bishop of Rome at the time was trying to gain more control and influence in the bishoprics outside of Italy, both spiritually and politically. Well, how good the relationship between the Bishop of Rome and the Archbishop of Cologne would become, you will soon find out. But all this, of course, promoted Gunther's position in the Frankish Middle Kingdom. Once again, Cologne was extremely distinguished from other Frankish cities and regions due to its direct connection with the reigning Archbishop and his close contacts with the emperor. What are the highlights of Gunther's tenure as Archbishop of Cologne? Gunther was considered an extremely well-read and intellectual personality for his time, who expanded the cathedral library just described with new books and further donations. He was very familiar with the holy scriptures and was an expert in canon law. The judgment of him in the historical sources ranges from being a pious and good shepherd to an unscrupulous power politician who concentrated on power politics more as a prince in the Frankish Empire than uh, on his spiritual task as a clergyman. For the city of Cologne, Gunther is significant because he made in the year 866 just the goods description which we had already discussed in the last episode. No longer the archbishop and the archbishopric as such owned everything directly concerning church property. No, in this decree or description, Gunther made out several main churches in his archbishopric which were to receive the ecclesiastical property in the Cologne area. But we hadn't even discussed why Gunther was doing this. Well, Gunther had in the course of his tenure more and more quarrels with Pope Nicholas, to put it like that at first. Even though their relationship had started really well, you know, the Pope had sent him the pallium as a mark of honor, but now Gunther and the Pope were arguing more and more often, and in order to be able to argue better, Gunther traveled almost constantly to Italy to be able to fight with the Pope personally in Rome, well, verbally. But trips to Italy are expensive, especially if you as Archbishop have a large entourage with you, which wants to be taken care of. 
So the Cologne churches and monasteries feared, not without good reason, that their archbishop might get the idea of siphoning off their earnings from the numerous estates, farms or even taverns they owned. Thus it came to that very charter of goods, the description of goods of the year 8666, which secured the property of the churches and monasteries in Cologne and other regions of the Archbishopric of Cologne. It was supposed to be one of the prerequisites for them to be able to operate and prosper independently of the Archbishop. The properties of the monasteries and churches were no longer subject to the whims of daily and power politics. This is one reason why the former monastery churches in Cologne, with today their privileges now gone, are still visibly shaping the city panorama today. Those who issued documents like that as rulers were usually not in a good position, so Gunther was not in a good position as archbishop. And yes, Gunther's position as archbishop of Cologne increasingly deteriorated as long as he was in office. But why was this so? Well, this had two reasons, which were completely power political. In 855, Lofa I, the emperor of the Frankish Middle Kingdom, had died. And as if things were not already bad enough, with the previous divisions of the once great Frankish Empire of Charles the Great and Louis the Pious, now even the Middle Kingdom is divided several times. Again there are three sons that were fathered by Lothar, and they each get their piece of the pie. The strip from the North Sea down to Switzerland along the Rhine is bequeathed to a guy named Lothar II. Again, a varied choice of name. Provence in southern France is given to another son named Charles, and Italy is given to the son named Louis, and as the eldest son, thus also the imperial dignity. Uh, did I already say, wow, again, a varied choice of name? You think that's too complicated with all the similar names and divisions of countries? What do you think how I felt? Also, here it should be noted that corresponding maps can be found in the companion post of my homepage. But why is that so important? Well, in the year 845, the Vikings had completely devastated and destroyed Hamburg, which was just founded in the Carolingian period. The archbishop there was just able to escape from the Normans. As compensation, The Archbishop of Hamburg, who had fled, was to receive the Bishopric of Bremen, which was more in the west and m more safer than Hamburg, that laid far more in the east, close to the, or at the Elbe River. But there was a small problem, because Bremen had already been a suffragan bishopric under Cologne for almost 50 years since Charles the Great and Hildebold had established the church organization in the former land of the Saxons. Archbishop Gunther resisted so fiercely that it was not until the Pope put his foot down in the year 870, so much later, 
that Bremen was finally removed from the ecclesiastical province of Cologne and handed over to the archbishopric of Hamburg. So this was already the first dispute that Gunther and Pope Nicholas I had with each other. But the second dispute they had, that really went beyond any scope and would have far-reaching consequences for European history. The city of Cologne ended up being ruled by King Lothar II that had inherited the northern part of the Middle Kingdom of his father Lothar now the first. Lothar II had a wife. Well, that was nothing special for a Frankish ruler to have a wife, but anyway, her name was Teutberger. Teutberger had done nothing wrong. But for Lothar II, this marriage was probably not good enough anymore after he became king in 855. Politically, Teutberger had probably become useless quite quickly for him. On the other hand, Lothar II much preferred to marry now after a short time another Frankish noblewoman named Waldrada, with whom he had fathered a son named Hugo in the same year of the wedding with his wife Teutberger in 855. Out of wedlock, of course. Christian empire or not, but as far as having it off with someone else was concerned, the rules among the Frankish male nobles were probably not so firm. Anyone who knows a little about marriage in the Middle Ages, which at that time could only be entered into by the approval of the church, knows it's hard to get out of it unless... unless you have a solid evidence that the marriage was not actually consummated. I'm sure I don't have to explain to you what that means exactly, because I believe you're all grown-up adults, according to my podcast statistics. But in such a case, the marriage, which never really existed, can be annulled. Not divorced, but be annulled, because it never got into action, if you know what I mean. According to the homepage of the Archdiocese of Cologne today, this is still possible nowadays, but unfortunately I have not found how often this is done in the year, for example. You really have to go to a church court and file for your marriage to be annulled. But if that were not enough simply to say that the marriage had not been consummated, Lothar II brought out some really heavy guns to achieve that. He came up with really bad allegations against his wife Teutberger. He said Teutberger associated with her brother more than just brotherly love. She had then aborted a child that had resulted from this. And yet, as patriarchal as the structures were in the Middle Ages, Teutberger first successfully fought for her honor. She was, after all, a Frankish noblewoman and did not let that stand. Before a court in the year 857, she demanded a judgment of God, which she won. As a result, she was acquitted of all charges against her. Of course, this also meant that she continued to be the lawful wife of Lothar II. Unfortunately, I have not been able to find out 
whether the judgment of God was a trial by fire, or the hot water trial, or the cold water trial. What exactly these trials were, maybe we will cover that another time in the course of this podcast. But after this defeat, Lothar II nevertheless did not give up. He wanted to get rid of Teutzberger and wanted to marry Waldrada. If he could not win in court, a higher instance had to do it. So Lothar II called for a synod in Aachen in 860, which he was able to do as a king. He demanded that the bishops of his Frankish Middle Kingdom annul the marriage between him and Teutzberger. If you can't remember what a synod is, just a quick reminder, a synod is an assembly of bishops in a certain dominion that a king can call for. In this case, that synod is only with the bishops in the kingdom of Lothar II. You might have guessed all along what this has to do with Cologne. This is where our archbishop Gunther came in. He was instrumental in pulling the strings of this outrageous staging that was going on in this synod, for he was the leader of this synod. Since the bishops all belonged politically to the king of Lotharingia, so Lothar II, that verdict was unambiguous. A corresponding confession by Todberger was also available in this case, which had probably been exalted from the poor woman under torture. And this is really sick. In the same year, Teutberger fled to a family who lived in West Francia and were thus outside the sphere of influence of Lothar II. There she recanted her confession from the synod and sent word to the Pope in Rome asking him for help. Pope Nicholas I believed Teutberger and took her side. But, as I mentioned before, the Pope was not yet as powerful as later in European history. Despite the Pope's complaint, Lothar II ruthlessly proceeds with the annulment of his marriage, because he was still married to Teutberger, even though he had tortured her and she fled from him to another country. But beyond the bishops and archbishops throughout the Frankish world, this incident aroused great resentment among the priesthood and the general populace. Notwithstanding this, King Lothar II called for another synod in the year 862, in which the bishops of his realm willingly annulled the marriage between him and Teutberger. At the same time, Lothar married his world's rather and crowned her as the new queen. The Pope sent messengers to Lothar's royal court to inquire what had happened, since he could not just turn on the TV and get the news directly, live. When the messengers arrived, Lothar bribed those papal messengers so that they confirmed the sentence. For that, he even called for a third synod where these papal messengers confirmed this sentence. Just think of the fuss Lothar II made just to marry another woman. He called three times all his bishops in his kingdom to come to one place and discuss this matter. 
what a waste of time and resources. Especially Gunther excelled at this as Archbishop of Cologne and leader of the synods. In the midst of the Third Synod, he noted that the marriage with Boldrada had originally been the first marriage of Lothar II, because the one with Teutberga had been forced and therefore been invalid. Wow! What a poor guy this king was that he was forced into a marriage by a woman at that time. Not everyone was okay with this. One of the bishops still meant to write on his signature that he would only support this if the Pope in Rome was still called upon as the last instance in this matter. Gunther then took a dagger and personally scraped away with it the corresponding line under the signature on the papyrus. Quite an archbishop by the grace of his king. I have no idea what Gunther was thinking, but he then thought it was just a formality to travel to Rome and present this to the Pope. So, one of Gunther's many journeys to Italy then began in the same year of 863. Together with the Archbishop of Trier, Gunther traveled to Rome to present the resolutions from Lothar's realm, from the synods. The Pope, however, was anything but enthusiastic about all of this. Neither had he been consulted beforehand, and then his messengers whom he had sent to Lofer had been bribed to give the decisions of the synods the appearance of paper permission without him knowing. I can totally understand why the Pope was mad. Pope Nicholas I not only rejected the synodal decisions made in the years between 860 and 863 in the Middle Kingdom, he also deposed on the spot Gunther from his office as Archbishop of Cologne. Wow! Now the Archbishopric of Cologne was virtually without leadership. But Gunther did not even think of vacating his office, because he still had his power structures back in Cologne. Some guy far away in Italy and Rome couldn't just oppose him. Nevertheless, this dismissal was a loud bang in the early medieval world. It was an important moment in the development of the papacy. In his eyes, he, that is, Pope Nicholas I, was the only one who was in charge as the supreme judge of the church, and therefore also expected that all the other bishops to be under him and obey him. Enraged about this development, Gunther and the Archbishop of Trier, who had also been deposed, left Rome. But Gunther hardly ever returned to Cologne. As I said, for he did not accept his deposition and soon also his excommunication. Most of the time, Gunther traveled to Italy to convince Emperor Louis II who had received the imperial dignity and the Italian part of the former Frankish Middle Kingdom, to take up his cause. As emperor also over the city of Rome, Gunther hoped that he could thus exert maximum pressure on Pope Nicholas to take back the deposition and the excommunication. 
And that is precisely why Gunther had guaranteed the Cologne churches and monasteries in his archbishopric their property in the fourth year of his deposition in 866. Since the offer was very generous, the wealthy monasteries and churches in Cologne did not care that Gunther was actually considered deposed. It is interesting that the document both sides agreed on does not name Gunther as Archbishop of Cologne, but only and simply as a venerable leader and pious guide. End quote. Also, Lothar II, who had a loyal support in Gunther and didn't care about his deposition by the Pope, confirmed the execution of the document to him. Welcome to Bridge Boys. Bridges. My name is Jeremy, and this is my partner in crime, Andreas Papas. That's right. We're here to introduce you to the podcast that takes you on a whirlwind tour of the world's coolest bridges. Yeah, we'll be exploring the history, culture, and engineering that goes into them. So we hope you'll join us on our exploration of all these beautiful bridges. And be sure to subscribe to the Bridge Boys podcast on your favorite podcast player. Yeah, we'll be dropping some new bridge knowledge every Monday starting August 9th. So we'll talk to all of y'all then. Bridges. But how did the drama end, the double divorce drama? Well, actually quite unspectacular. Despite the eventual support of some Frankish kings, nobles and bishops, Pope Nicholas I stuck to his decision until the end. Gunther was deposed as an archbishop. His end came in the year 867. And that year, Pope Nicholas died. And also Gunther's friend and patron, Lothar II, died in the year 869. But also Nicholas's successor, Pope Hadrian II, thought that the decision of his predecessor was right and that it would not be proper to question the decisions of his predecessor. In the meantime, Teutberger, Lothar II's first wife, also wished to have the marriage annulled, which, well, happened automatically in the year 869 when Lothar II also died. But it was no use for Gunther. Resigned, Gunther, one of the most colorful bishops of Cologne known to us so far, acknowledged that he could not win. In the year of Lothar II's death in the year 869, Gunther submitted to his deposition that was already decided six years before, and proposed in return that a cleric named Willibert should be his successor. So it came to pass, and in the year 869, Gunther retired. And not a lot of time later, on 8th July 873, Gunther died peacefully at Xanten and was buried there. However, there is no evidence of a saint who descended from heaven to kill him, like I told you in the intro. This is only a later, small legend of his enemies. What sounds like a ridiculous divorce drama, which it ultimately was, had far-reaching effects on Europe, 
Lothar II's divorce drama had severely damaged his reign and the political situation of his middle kingdom. His two most important spiritual and political advisors, the two archbishops from Cologne and Trier, had been stripped of their power during his reign. The position in the middle between the West and East Frankish kingdoms made the rulers there take notice of possible gains at the expense of Lothar II's Middle Kingdom. West Francia and East Francia formally allied themselves in this time, but Lothar II remained outside with his kingdom in the middle. This divorce drama leads to the fact that this Middle Kingdom, which is unusual from today's point of view in our eyes, quickly comes to an end. For us nowadays, this Middle Kingdom is unusual only because it just never lasted long enough to build up its own tradition or identity among its subjects living there. Nowadays, its former territory lies on the territories of today's countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Switzerland, Germany, Italy and Austria. Lothar II had simply overstepped the mark and placed himself above bishops, law, decency and ultimately God's will in the eyes of his contemporaries. This is how one of the butterfly effects occurred, turning the once great Frankish empire into two entities that are now roughly France and Germany. Only three years after Lothar II's death in 870, the eastern and western neighboring Frankish kingdoms swallowed Lothar II's middle kingdom between themselves in the Treaty of Mersen. If you take a quick look at the borders of the year 870 after the middle kingdom was swallowed up, this already looks roughly very similar to the borders of France, Italy, and Germany today in the 21st century, very roughly. Of course nothing had been set in stone at that time. Had there again been a strong and fortunate rule of the Franks, he could have restored the empire as in the days of good old Charles the Great. But this simply did not happen anymore, at least not over a longer period of time. Thus in the long run, West Francia becoming the Kingdom of France and Eastern Francia becoming the medieval German Empire came into being. <sighs> Let's leave it for today. This episode is also an example of how the papacy in Rome takes on more and more form. It was still completely dependent on the respective Frankish king or emperor in Charles's time. In Charles's time, the Pope was completely at the mercy of the Frankish king and would probably have been blinded without his help. Now with several Frankish partial kingdoms, the possibility opens also for the Bishop of Rome to advance a spiritual but also political claim to leadership in the Christian world. Then also slowly the attitude of many clergymen themselves changes that the Pope is to be seen rather as last instance and not the respective king or emperor. Because in their opinion, it was Peter 
who became the first pope and was appointed personally by Jesus, and not some Frankish king. Next episode, things get a little dicey, in the truest sense of the word. For some time now, the news has reached the Rhineland that wild men from the north are making the coast of northern Europe unsafe. Already during the reign of Lothar I, they had haunted the North Sea coast of his empire. You can imagine what this is all about. About the Normans, or better known to the public as the Vikings. Personally, I think that hardly any time has been so glorified as that of the Vikings. Tall, blond men with horned helmets. Which is all nonsense. In Germany, kids grow up with a German-Japanese children's series which is called Vicky and the Strongman, and this kids show shows the Vikings as a nice and charming bunch having adventures at sea all the time. That this portrayal may not be entirely truthful, well, you'll find out in the next episode, among others, when the Danish Vikings visit Cologne. And not just once, and not as nice tourists like they do nowadays, but as really bad guys. And at the end of this episode, I would like to thank my not one or two, but three new Patreons that support financially my show now every single episode. Thank you so much to Artus Maximus, Attila Ratnay and Thomas Hamet. Thank you really very, very much for your additional support. It means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please recommend me further. And as always, auf Wiedersehen. Music